Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Soft Web Radio, Special Operations Military News, and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. And hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. We're doing a show today with uh, a couple of very important guests here and ones we're really looking forward to talking to we we have javier pena 
and Steve Murphy from the DEA. And if you guys don't recognize their names, you will recognize who they took down. And that was Pablo Escobar. And, you know, we're going to talk about the, the years they spent in uh, not only in Colombia, but, you know, where how they got there to begin with. We're going to talk about their book called Manhunters, uh, how they took down Pablo Escobar. And uh, they also worked on the Netflix show Narcos, which I think everybody in the world has seen at this point, <laughs> because uh, that everyone you talk to has seen Narcos. Now, a lot of that, and we'll talk about that too, a lot of that is uh, Hollywood. They, they kind of played with the facts a little bit, as they always do, but we want to welcome these guys. Javier, Steve, thank you for taking the time today. I was really excited to do this one. Steve, thank you very much for having us on the show. We're just as excited as you are. Yep, we appreciate it. Looking forward to that. Looking forward. Well, before we get into the nuts and bolts, I know uh, two of the guys that that read our columns and stuff every day on SoftRep, they sent me a message and they said, you have to ask Javier, did did he really have sex with all of... uh, Pablo's hookers. <laughs> Let me just say that's the one part of Narcos that's true, Steve. <laughs> you know what? If you think I did, then yes, 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 I did. Of course. Come on, man. Come on, man. Yeah, because because uh, I, you know, uh, a couple of guys had heard through the grapevine that because I, I had done a book review on 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 your book and that we had already posted that because I was teasing it with the podcast and a guy sent me a message. And he's like, Steve, you have to ask, did he really do all of, uh, you know, Escobar's hookers, you know, and try to recruit them? And I started laughing. I was like, I didn't really think about asking him that, but that'll be the how we lead off the show. That's it. And that's a great question. I like to It's true. Sometimes you have to do that. Let me just put the record straight ahead, here. That's my partner we're talking about. So, you know, I mean, he's single. He wasn't doing hookers and communist informants, but you know what? Every other woman in Columbia was fair game. <laughs> you know what? You know, hey, you know, you know I said, you know what? I was ordered by the United States Guard. So of course I had to do it. <laughs> it's, it's a dirty job, but somebody it's had to do it. Job. That's it. Suffering <laughs> for the taxpayers. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys, in your wildest dreams growing up, did you ever think you'd be watching a movie made about your life? No. You know what? This is the last thing we thought we'd ever be doing. Uh, um, Quite honestly, I had aspirations of being one of the court security officers at the federal building telling all you young whippersnappers, put your gun in an x-ray machine. You're not taking a gun to federal courthouse. (laughs) This is honestly the last thing. Never crossed our minds. Um, And, you know, quite honestly, we had been approached by a a couple of producers about doing something. But uh, once we talked to them, they had personal agendas in mind. and, And they didn't really care about telling the truth of our story. They wanted to make they had political agendas is what they wanted to do. And, uh, and, and, you know, you kind of get your hopes up that something will happen. And, and after being shot down twice, I've never talked about it. We say, you know what? Nobody cares about this story. It's been too long. It's too old. Uh, just forget about it. And uh, in 2013, that's when Eric Newman called and, and he's the creator of Narcos. And, um, you know, when he first, when I first spoke to him, I turned him down and I'm pretty sure he fell out of his chair. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> We've learned people will sell their souls to, to get into Hollywood. 
but uh, it, it kind of worked out. We met with him eventually and, and our personalities clicked and, and uh, he was concerned, you know, he was, he's like, why are you guys so hesitant? And we said, the last thing we ever want anybody to do is glorify somebody like Pablo Escobar. This guy's nothing more than a mass murderer on top of being the, I mean, we'll tell you more things about him as we go along here, but he's just a thug. He's a punk and he was a criminal. Uh, and in our opinion, uh, Eric Newman lived up to his word with us that he did not glorify Pablo Escobar. So we're pretty happy with the series. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, when uh, when we were searching for Pablo Escobar one night, and I'll always forget the conversation, it was one of the uh, the majors. Remember Jorge Daniel Castro Castro? He, he let the uniform side. He was more of the, you know, we had like 600 guys. Uh, they called them, uh, they were from uh, Gaula. Anyway, the, the, the uniform started the police, so he, he let them. Anyway, he, him and I were talking one, I'll, I'll always remember, I'll never forget. He said, yeah, man, one of these days after all this is over, somebody's going to make a movie out of this. I said, Colonel, who in the hell would want to make a movie? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I said, I was never going to make a movie on all this shit. You know, you know what was I wrong after all that happened? You know? <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, you know, as I've spoken to both of you guys, uh, being down there, not involved with what you guys are doing in, in any way, shape or form. But that was an interesting time in Colombia. Such a beautiful place. And there's so many misconceptions about that. And uh, I wanted to ask you first, Javi, because I know you yeah. um, you got there first. You got right. there, I believe, in 1988. Right. You know, right. explain to our listeners what Colombia was like back then. Yeah, you know what? When we get there to Colombia, Steve, and I had never been there, and just to start it off, I did not want to go to Colombia. I had put in for Mexico, so when my boss says, "Javier, uh, did you put in for Colombia?" I said, "No, sir." He says, "Well, uh, you got selected for Colombia. <laughs> you want to fight it?" I said, "No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go." And, and you know what? So I had never been there, but when I get there, man, it was like totally different what I had heard. The cops were great to work with. The, like I said, the mountain sides, the that climate, that weather in Bogota, as you remember, it was always 50, mm, 60. Beautiful. Perfect, beautiful at nighttime. You needed a light jacket. The people were so friendly, helping you out, whatever you wanted. And, you know, we talked about your experiences with your military guys. Those guys, you know, they, they took care of us. They, they always... Uh, we're out there uh, for us, so we. I I was in for a total. It was a total shock for me. I was expecting something, something else. But there were just some of the nicest, friendliest people we came across, and you know we're still good friends with some of the people uh, back then. But uh, like I said, the city, the picturesque, the mountains, that jungle area, it was just beautiful, you know, back then. Yeah, Steve, you came afterwards, but you came from Miami. And, you know, I think a lot of people equate what what's going on. You know, the people who hadn't been there, they, they equate what was going on in uh, Colombia, like Miami Vice, because I think everybody in the world used to watch Miami Vice. And, you know, they were thinking you guys were running around in like, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, white suit and. <laughs> living on a, a speedboat with an alligator and, you know, having shootouts every afternoon. But uh, it is quite different. Now, what were your impressions when you first got there? 
Well, you, I mean, you know what? Before I joined DEA, I was watching Miami Vice too, and that's what I expected when I got to Miami. <laughs> 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 that car, that speedboat. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, I did four years in Miami, and and uh, and you, you saw in the book there. My, we did have a bad day where deal went bad, my partner was shot, and the informant was killed. Um, but after four years in Miami, about three, after about three years, my wife, she's pretty adventuresome also. And uh, she said, you know what? And we're small town people. You know, I grew up in Tennessee and West Virginia. I'm like a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. She's from West Virginia. And we're just country folk, you know, and, and uh, we moved to Miami. And I mean, we were really fish out of water, but you learn, you know, you, you learn to adapt and, uh, to your surroundings. And so after about three years, she came to me and she said, you know, this has been a really exciting life down here. What's the next most exciting thing we could do? So, well, you know what? We could go to Columbia. And she looked at me like I had three eyes, you know, like, are you freaking crazy? Or what? <laughs> but she is, uh, she's the kind of girl that, uh, you know, you got to give her time to think about it. And so I just kind of laid off the subject and a, and a friend of ours, an agent from Barranquilla was coming up to Miami. So we set up dinner and, and uh, she grilled him for about three hours on what it was like in Columbia and the danger and the living conditions and all that. And a couple weeks after that, she said, uh, hey, do you still want to go to Columbia? And I said, absolutely. And she said, if we're going to do it, let's do it while we're young. So I applied, uh, actually got selected for Barranquilla uh, through a party. You know, you know how it is. You, you get in a transfer. It's on you to throw your going away party with your buddies. So went ahead through the party. And then like a, a couple of days later, they withdrew my transfer because they needed a, a Spanish-speaking agent immediately. And I had to go to language school, so I lost my transfer, but then uh, ended up getting Bogota, and, and uh, we showed up down there. I've uh, been in language school for six months, and I could speak Spanish, but they taught me how to speak proper Spanish. I don't speak proper English. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I could, I could talk to the people, and they could understand everything I said, but when they would answer back in, in colloquial sayings and local dialects and, and much faster than what I'm used to, you know, it was like a deer in the headlights, like, what the hell did you just say to me? But, um, you know, so I was going to the embassy, and the third day I'm there is when Escobar surrendered. This is in June 1991, and, and uh, I'm thinking, wow, this is great, you know. I mean, I guess he heard I was in town. He might as well give it up because, you know, nobody else catches got it, which is all a lie. Um, but what I saw and what I saw like with Javier and his partner, Gary Sheridan and everybody else in the embassy was they were disappointed. And I thought, how can you be disappointed that the world's biggest cocaine dealers in prison? But then I learned by working with Gary and working with Javier here, what a joke plea bargain was, you know, uh, we ultimately found out he was living in a country club rather than a prison. Um, you know, and just, that's when I really learned about what was going on. But I went down there thinking everybody is a drug trafficker because the only Colombians I ever met yeah. locked up in South Florida. Turns right. out that yeah. they're the nicest, nicest people in the world, most accepting. Uh, you know what? If you go down there with an attitude, with that American attitude, they'll tell you real quick where the airport is. And you can get your oh, yeah. Out. yeah. But, but you know, but the same token, you know, with those the people down there, if if you try to assimilate into their society and like them, they, they'll do anything in the world for you. They're just very hospitable people. And what you were just saying about the uh, your accent, you know, the Columbia one of the Colombian officers I worked with had spent time in the States. And he used to laugh whenever I'd speak Spanish to him because he's like, I've never heard anyone speak Spanish with a Boston accent before. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine it was a Southern, how do you say y'all in Spanish, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And, and you know what? One of the, before we uh, yeah, go any further, one of the things that I noticed also is when we first got there, and I think you're going to relate to this experience, the attitude was, I don't know, and I'm not going to get too much into it, but the attitude was that some of the cops were all dirty. You couldn't trust them. You know what I'm saying? But when we mm-hmm. started working with them, and then all of a sudden, once, once we broke that barrier, then we found out, you know, one of the reasons, the obstacles was, and they finally told us, you know what, guys, we give the gringos, we give DEA all this information, we never get nothing back in return. He said, we're tired. You know, it's all, they take everything, they leave, and we're like, whatever happens. So then, you know, Steve and I, the old, I mean, Gary Sheridan, you know, we started changing that attitude, like, Guys, here's the information. You gave me this phone number for Miami. Here are some of the people. This Miami number is calling. Here are the traffickers. And all of a sudden, hey, your information, what you gave us, Colombian cop, that's led to a thousand key seizure in Miami. Here's a letter, an attaboy letter. And, you know, I love your experience. They love those attaboy letters. Oh, yeah. To the general. And, it, you know, and they, it meant a lot for them. So all of a sudden, it started, you know what, and it was just a basic reciprocation. You know, they give you something, you give them something back. And the other thing that really, I think, will win for us is like, wow, y'all are here, you care, you're working with us. Uh, once they started trusting you, man, those doors were wide open and, you know, we could do a lot of stuff. But it, it was just a, a basic, you know, human uh, principle of, Hey, they're going to help you out. You're going to help them out, and you're in it together. And uh, it's just a basic, you know, human, uh, you know, inter- interchange. Here. And, and I think the fact that you know, from reading the book, and uh, the fact that you two lived with them down in Medellin, in the in the uh, that the base they had right in the center of town, mm-hmm. and you shared their, you know. I mean, I, I know in the book, Steve, you talked about sleeping in a room with four Colombian guys. And, you know, um, I mean, that goes a long way when you're sharing their, you know, their experience with them and you go out on raids with them. I think that goes, speaks volumes to them that you're, you, you know, you're not just in it for what you can get out of it. You're you're going to uh, be in it with them for the for the long haul. Well, you know, that was that was a real bone of contention down there because, um, as you know, you know, we had the we had General Jerry Boykin was down. There. He was a colonel back then. He got his first car while he was there in Columbia. But he brought down Delta and he brought down Team Six and their orders. All of our orders were we were not allowed to leave the police base and the police base, as you know, in Columbia is like a military base here in the United States. We weren't allowed mm-hmm. to leave and it was for safety reasons. But how many, you know, you know, we talked about at the very beginning. We said, hey, we can't do our job sitting in here, you know, and you think about it, hey, hey, Steve, listen, I, I got a tip that Pablo Escobar's down there to the corner first in Maine. Go see if you can find him. I'm gonna grab a cup of coffee and you come back and tell me what you, what you find when you get back. You know, how much respect are you gonna have for for us? And so we decided at the very beginning we were gonna continue to do our job the way we'd been doing it. And, and it turned out to be a hell of a lot more fun than sitting back there at the base, you know, because it's, you're going out on the Huey gunships on, not on a daily basis, but several times a week, you're going out in unmarked cars and surveillance, meeting informants, uh, you know, the whole ball of wax that was required to, uh, to get the job done. And that's what, 
Well, Javier, explain the what the cops ask you. What about the gringos? Yeah, and, and you know, because Steve and I were in operations, we like, and we always we tell people we broke policies, rules. We never broke the law, right? We never crossed that line. But we were out there, surveillances, arrests. And, and the thing about the when you do a search warrant, you know, and and we're in it for legal prosecutions, right? You know, to put people in jail. Uh, so, uh, you know, the documents that we were collecting, that we were getting, we'd have notepads, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it was firsthand information, send it back to Miami, you know, so they could take action. But anyway, one, I think some of the highest, one of the highest remarks ever, you know, the cops were like, Javier, he said, one night, one day, he said, how come you and Steve are the only gringos? that are with us on operations. What about all the rest of the guys? Are they like afraid? And I explained to them, it's different uh, regulations. We're law enforcement. We're out there to collect evidence. We're there to help you all out. We're, we're police. And, but that always, always stuck in my mind. How come it's only you and Steve with us on, on all the operations? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's funny. You, you, you just mentioned, uh, you know, you broke some regulations by going out on ops and you yeah. kept your integrity. Uh, I was talking with someone last week and they had seen the pictures and there was a picture of you, Javi. Yeah. And uh, you were with, a, you had a bunch of gold bars in front of you and there was a gold plated 45, I think. And, and they said, you know, uh, do you think these guys ever took any of that gold or money <laughs> or stuff? And I said, you know, I said, if you question their integrity, Look at the picture real close. I said, because he's got a suit on, but he's got a cheap-ass Timex on. I said, if he was taking the money, he would have had a Rolex. So I said, I think their integrity is intact. No one has, has ever caught that. I think Steve and I, we, we joke and said, yeah, you think, and my watch is a Casio watch. And I'm glad you caught that. It's a $10. Oh, I thought it was a Timex, but yeah. Well, it, well, even cheaper than a Timex. A Casio <laughs> Remember those uh, rubber watches, ten bucks? Yeah, yeah. tie it if you saw. Government it. issue, then yeah. Clearly, it's a clip-on tie because I hated to tie ties, man. You know, so that's a clip-on <laughs> tie too. Yeah. And you know and, what? <laughs> just just to clarify, Steve, too, when when we say the operators were not going out, it wasn't because they didn't want to. I mean, right, we tell the world, you guys are the studs of the world. You you guys are like muscles with legs and a brain, just walking around wanting to kill something or break something. You know. <laughs> And and we every show we do around the world, we give you guys credit because if Javier and I are ever kidnapped, you guys are the ones that we want to come and get us because we've seen you work. We know what your capabilities are. You know, I don't want anybody else coming. I, I trust you guys with my life. But the fact is that you guys were military also and you followed orders. And, and you know, we didn't, well, we didn't follow orders, I guess is what it boils down to, right? <laughs> Well, we broke a few in Bolivia. I did, like I said, yeah. in Colombia, I wasn't involved with what you guys did, yeah. but uh, training the uh, the the snowcapped guys in Umopar who worked with the Bolivians. Uh, yeah. We used to break a couple of rules and regs back then. I I hope uh, I don't get in trouble for this now, but uh, <laughs> limitations run out. And the other thing, and I agree with you, I mean, those guys, when they came in, wow. I mean, how they trained the cops, I mean, your guys, I mean, stuff I didn't even know that could be happening. And, you know, that led to successful operations later on. And the other problem with 
with the operators, there were there were people from the embassy that were not in that uh, arena. Other people that were calling in everything into the embassy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Every mm-hmm. little uh, detail was being called in because the operators were with them, where Steve and I were alone with the cops. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? We had we had yeah, our absolutely. Your guys were with other people from the embassy that would report. Man, hey, this guy had stepped, you know, stepped the foot outside the base. You know, then it was being reported. <laughs> it was weird, man. It was weird, but the orders were do not leave the base. Obviously, yeah, we, we're talking. We're talking about an organization that we can't talk about. <laughs> right. Uh- I know exactly what you're talking about because you mentioned it in the book. Yeah, and you know, I ran into the same thing because, uh, again, you know, different country, but working with with your people and those people in right. Bolivia, there was a lot of animosity oh, yeah. even there. And I that's when uh, one of the, the guys who worked for that other organization told me, you think it's bad here? In Colombia, it's a hundred times worse. Oh, really? <laughs> wow! Yeah, yeah. It, it did work because he had been there. One, one, yeah, one of the guys had been down there, and he goes, "It's, it's, it's a lot worse down there." So you know what that uh, makes you. Feel I know good. exactly what that makes you feel yeah. good. Thanks. So we worked the only one. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wanted to ask you guys about, um, and you know, and you guys talk about it in the book, and both of you have been there. The prison, I've I've heard that the prison that Pablo built for himself, I've seen the pictures of it. Obviously, it doesn't look like any prison I have ever envisioned in my life. It looks like someplace I couldn't afford to go on vacation. But uh, um, I heard that the pictures don't even do it justice how lush that place was. Go ahead, JP. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. The pictures don't do it justice. It was... We suspected, but now I said, and remember, there were, Colombia had a law or a rule that nobody could go visit Escobar at the prison. That was part of the condition. So obviously, you know, everybody was obeying that, you know, you know, the Colombian rule. So we knew, but once we got there, what, what we saw, it was like, wow, this, uh, we were totally wrong. This is, they called it a, uh, a country club, they called it the cathedral. There were only one set of bars, and that was if people were to go to the front, they would see some bars, but it, it was just one-sided. Everything else was open. When we got in there, uh, Escobar had his own apartment, and all that Steve explained it here. He had his own apartment. The other inmates had their, there was no jail cell, had their own apartments on the back, then all of a sudden, we discovered chalets. That's what they were calling them. He had built chalets on the side of the mountain, right besides the prison. There were like fancy apartments, camouflaged, some of the most beautiful. You know what always stuck in my mind was, you know, he had this giant uh, TVs. Remember the big Sony's that nobody mm-hmm. could the city oh, yeah. back then? Giant refrigerator mm-hmm. freezers in this on the sides of the mountain built into the apartments. Uh, there, there was no cell. His his apartment, Escobar's apartment, overlooked Medellin. 
it had one of the beautiful, prettiest sites we'd ever see. There was uh, Medellin is sort of in a valley. The, the prison was on top. You could see all the city. I mean, beautiful. And uh, like I said, it was just luxury inside uh, the apartments that they had built there. So there was no prison cell. There was a country club type setting. And obviously, we'll get into the pictures. Steve, you want to explain the, you know, the, the part, his apartment? Yeah, so when you when you went into Pablo's, uh, I can't even call it a prison cell because it's just such a joke. <laughs> it's a two-room suite. So you go in yeah. there and, and, you know, you've got a side-by-side refrigerator, freezer, full-size microwave, custom-built cabinetry. Uh, he had uh, color-coordinated draperies, you know, that flowery pattern on the draperies <laughs> and, his, and his couches and his furniture. Um, he had professional artwork hanging on the wall, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the cheap things we get out here at the Kia store. You know, it was, uh, he had a Salvador Dali original worth over $3 million hanging in his two-room suite of the prison. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He had a Botero original. Uh, Fernando Botero is a, a famous artist in Colombia that's still alive today. And he had a, a Botero original worth $1.5 million hanging in, in the first, you know, in his living room area. And then you go into the second room and it's a combination bedroom, office, He's got a fireplace. He's got a custom-built bed that's bigger than any king-size bed. And there's there's one of the three of us on this podcast right now that actually slept in that bed. Um, and I'll let because <laughs> of his reputation. Um, Pablo had his own private bathroom with a jacuzzi tub. And you've been to prisons around the world. What do they have? We call them group showers. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he had a, a cold water. Exactly. Don't drop soap. Um, he had a walk-in closet, and behind one of the drawers, you pull the drawer out, he had a safe hidden in there uh, where where your long clothes would hang in the closet. You can move those back, and there was a hidden button up in, under the shelf. You hit that button, and the wall popped open. There was a hiding place back there for him in case you know he thought, well, if the gringos come to get me, I'll, I'll pop in there, and, and they'll never find me. Well, we found that. You know, we like to think we'd have found his happy ass in there. <laughs> it was just... It was just ridiculous, you know, full-blown soccer field complete with lights. You know, I've got four kids. Uh, three of my kids played soccer growing up. We never had lighted soccer fields, and they grew up after Pablo Escobar's time in prison. It was just, it was just like Javier said, a country club setting. It was a joke. Uh, we had, we were told by the Columbia National Police that after Pablo did his time in prison there, he had plans. He was going to open up a, this resort area because he felt like people around the world would pay money to come and sleep in a bed or, you know, come and hang out where Pablo Escobar was in prison. And you know, as well as we do, there's some sick people in this world that would pay good money for that. And then uh, you alluded to before the the pictures. Yeah. We found a lot of photos of parties uh, that were going on inside the the prison. There was a lot of negligees, you know, lingerie type stuff for women that would come in then we started seeing the parties. He had a bar, you know, a drinking bar inside the prison, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a nice little bar, pictures. They, they left because when he escaped, obviously he left a lot of stuff behind. Uh, there were, you know, what he had a drum set there. There were photos of the other traffickers. There's one trafficker dressed in uh, uh, drag. Uh, you know, the guy's name is Popeye, one of the most deadliest sicarios Pablo Escobar had in prison. You know, he spent about, what, 20 years there? He came out about five years ago. But we have pictures of, of Popeye 
John Heidel Velasquez Vasquez dressed in drag at parties inside. Then we started seeing letters. And you know what? Uh, one of the talk shows I did in Colombia, they were questioning. Oh, that is not true. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I told the, the radio announcer, I said, do you think we're making this stuff up, man? You know, we, we were reading letters from mothers offering their daughters to go visit Pablo Escobar, obviously for money. I mean, that's to the extent of there's crazy people out there, there's weird people, but, you know, I remember, and Steve knows it, we read the letter, there was just a mom offering, hey, here's a picture of my daughter, and then tons of other women, hey, here's my picture, please let me come uh, visit you. I mean, that's just a, a sick, uh, you know, uh, a attitude, but anyway, it was country club, it was partying, uh, you know, and uh, the sex toys, oh man, <laughs> there was tons of sex toys, there's a photo, <laughs> I don't ever catches that photo, remember Steve, we, when we put it up, on one side, it's yeah. full of vibrators, all that sort of stuff, and no one ever, it's, I don't know, but, uh, you know, the orgies, now, you know, I, I gotta say one thing, buddy, I gotta, you know what, the orgies, Pablo Escobar loved it, but that doesn't make him a bad guy for loving orgies. So I just got to put that out. Everyone has their own saving graces. I mean, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Steve, Steve, I wanted to ask you th there was a picture of you, I guess it was Pablo's desk, and you were sitting behind it in the prison. And he had some figurines that looked like, I don't know whether they were soldiers or cops. What yeah. was what was the point of that? You know, those are the figurines are they're about this big. You could still buy them in Columbia as a souvenir, and it was Columbia National Police officers. And and what we believe the reason he had it there is because when he's sitting behind that desk and he's holding court, you know, he's visitors coming in to see uh, Don Pablo or El Doctor or El Professor or whatever you want to call this guy. You know, he leans over and he says, you see these? I own them. I own the whole country of Colombia. I'm Pablo Escobar. And he says, rightfully so, look at the deal I've got. Now, he's supposed to be in prison and it's a country club, you know. And so it was just uh, okay. another way of him going, hey, Governor of Columbia, here's to you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's ridiculous. Oh, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense because, uh, you know, when I've seen that picture, I was trying to make sense. I didn't know if that was like uh, some trophy for like guys he, you know, we all know he assassinated so many cops and judges and the minister of justice and uh, uh, actual presidential uh, candidates. So I, I didn't know if that was some kind of a trophy. I, uh, that that was one of the questions I had because, you know, that's uh, I mean, when you see the pictures of that prison, it's, it blows you away. I mean, we should all live so badly. You know, yeah. Isn't that the truth? Yep, and like like we said, it wasn't a prison. And and the other question we 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 get asked a lot is, why did the government of Colombia accept that deal? And if we can just, because uh, man, that, I mean, it's hard for everybody to understand why would Colombia allow the biggest narco trafficker killed what we claim the numbers ten to fifteen thousand people that Pablo Escobar ordered, killed, uh, his Sicario Popeye claims the figures closer to 50,000 people. Um, Pablo Escobar's own personal Sicario claims, it's Pablo killed 50,000. Anyway, so going back, it's like, why would the government of Colombia accept that and then accept that nobody can come and visit Escobar? No, I mean, no law enforcement, no security can come in and check on him well. That's a great question, right? I mean, why would they do that? I mean, there's always two sides to the coin. So, and if you remember, I mean, you were there with the military, but you remember all the car bombs that were going on during that time, all the assassinations, and we can talk about all the, you know, the cop killings for bounties. So it, it was just, Columbia was tired. It was tired of People were getting killed on a daily basis, on weekends. In Medellin, there was three to 400 people on a weekend in Medellin itself, only in that city. So when when uh, Pablo Escobar, and obviously, you know what, he, he knew what he was doing because of all the killings that were going on. That's when he called the government of Colombia and said, I'll surrender and I'll stop my bombing campaign. And the conditions were... 
I build my own prison. I will pay for it. I'm going to hire my own prison guards. I'll pay for them. I'm going to take my own sicarios. That way they can protect me and nobody can come and visit me. And the government of Colombia accepted that deal, right? Now, the bombing stopped. The killing did stop when he surrendered. So, like I said, and I'm not, if you put yourself in the president's shoes of Colombia, and I'm not saying we were against that, but if you look at the other side of the coin, is how many people's lives were saved by those conditions. We never liked that deal. Let me be upfront with that. We, we hated that deal, but I don't know. If you're the president, what would you do? Right. Exactly. You know, uh, because I, I was talking with some of the guys who had been there longer than, than I, you know, before I got there. And they said during that time, just prior to him turning himself in, there was like 10 to 15 car bombs a day. It was like more than Beirut, which at that time, Beirut was considered the car bomb capital of the world. But uh, they said Colombia was probably worse during that that era just before he turned himself in. Well, you know, after his escape too, Steve, um, we'd go out on operations and, and you, you know, you get back in. If you've been out on Hilo operations, they'd bring you back in before dark. And uh, so we're grabbing, you know, our, our wonderful dinners of uh, <laughs> rice and potatoes every night. And uh, we went in the backfield of the police base. You know, Medellin is built kind of in a bowl. and We're on one side of the bowl. And at nighttime, there's a big open field. And so you, you can have a cold beer and walk back there. And you're, you know, just kind of bonding with your Colombian counterparts, more or less, and just kind of relaxing. And that night, we heard 17 car bombs go off in one night. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's outrageous. You know, and us being U.S. law enforcement, we weren't used to car bombs. We'd never encountered that. So that was completely new to us. That's more of a, it, like you said, that's something you see in, in foreign countries. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, yep. And you were absolutely right. 10 to 15 on a daily basis, car bombs. I mean, it was just the violence, the atrocities, and the kidnapping started, uh, kidnapping journalists and bounties on police officers, you know, and uh, you know how much he was paying for a killing of, of one police officer? A hundred dollars a head. That's what the life of a human being, a police officer in Colombia was at that time, $100 a hit. So all the Sicarios were killing as many cops as they could, and they would co- collect the money at the end of the day. Uh, so what what was, you know, a human life worth $100 for a Colombian police officer? And thousands of Colombian police officers uh, were killed, but, you know, but, in, you know, and I always, what stays in my mind is indiscriminate car bomb. I mean, anywhere, anytime we came close to some, he was targeting police. He put him at restaurants. Remember when he said, then he started targeting the Sona Rosa area, which is Bogota, which is all the yeah. bombers, and they closed that down. I mean, but it was just wow, wow, was back then, you know? Yeah. And, you know, um, with all the, the killings that were done then, it's, it's amazing. That the people, I mean, eventually they turned against him. Obviously in Medellin, you know, he had spent a lot of his money. He he did build some schools. He built, you know, uh, clinics for the people down there. But, uh, you know, I, a lot of people like to say, well, he was kind of like Robin Hood. And I, I've read in, in your book, you guys make it very clear. He wasn't Robin Hood, you know, not at all. He was bloodthirsty. But he did have some organizational skills. I mean, he took he took himself up by the kind of 
I, probably by default, he started off as a small time hood. And then in, uh, probably in the space of less than 10 years, he became the number one narco organizer in the world. And he had up to, I think you guys said he had up to $30 billion. Is that correct? And that, wasn't, that wasn't us saying that. That was Forbes magazine. They estimated his wealth at between eight and $30 billion, not million, billions. It's crazy. It, you know, and, you, and you're talking about him being the Robin Hood. He just, he was the master manipulator. That's all he was. It wasn't anything Robin Hood-esque about that, you know, because he would go in and he did do those nice things you said. That, that is, those are good things for people that are living on the edge of a trash dump. But when he needed new Sicarios, new guys to come and, you know, be his bodyguards and all that, that's right where he went back to. Of course, he manipulated those people because they're thinking, oh, man, this is like a god. We sure, Pablo, we'll kill for you. We'll die for you. So he really manipulated those people. And you know what? If you go down to that area of Medellin today, that's Barrio Pablo Escobar, man. You don't want to go in there and say anything bad about him because those people still think he is some kind of hero. I, and I remember, I think I mentioned the book where I interviewed one of the Sicarios. And, uh, you know, that's just where I, I really, you would, you got to know Pablo Escobar, but, but I'll always remember this young Sicario, 15 years old. Remember the bounties on police officers? He admitted to me he had already killed 10 police officers. But what stuck in my mind was what he told me. He says, he says, Mr. Pena, and I'll never forget, he says, you know what? He says, I will die and I will kill for Pablo Escobar. And what you alluded to right now, he's giving my money. He's giving my mom money. She was able to buy a little house. She's got food. She, you know, she used to be poor. Pablo gave us a new life. So my allegiance, you know, I will die and I'll kill for Pablo Escobar. He's our hero. Uh, he says, uh, and, and then that's what he told me. He had already killed 10 police officers. And he said, I'll be dead by 22, 23 years old, uh, but I will die for Pablo Escobar. And if you multiply that attitude by 500 Sicarios, that's where you have that loyalty of the Sicario, the assassin willing to kill and die for Pablo Escobar, like we saw in other countries, right? You know? Uh, what we're facing with, how do you, you know, the suicide bomber, uh, how do you deal with those? And it's something we're not used to it, uh, that we have never seen. So it, it, it was, it, it was just a different war back then, but like Steve is absolutely correct. You go into Medellin right now, you, you know, I tell people don't bat mouth Pablo Escobar in Medellin because there's still people that believe he's that hero, and you know, I hope we dispel that myth. Uh, but you know, don't you know, avoid problems basically. But you know, the majority of the Colombians hate Pablo Escobar, they know the, the real truth. But if you go back to that little fan base that he had and talk about charismatic leader, Pablo used to go down personally and recruit this thugs. You know, they, he was there, they'd be about 300 waiting for him. They would hear, hey, the boss is coming. He's looking for Sicarios. You'd have three to 400 all waiting for him. And Paolo would kiss him, hug him, give him money. So it was that charismatic side that Pablo Escobar had. Yeah, I often wonder about a guy like him, if he chose a different life path, would he have been successful doing something like legally? I mean, because you talk about that, and I saw some of the, during the, uh, it was during the Narcos uh, 
films where they actually had actual film of him when he was trying to run for Congress and he had huge crowds around him. And you all often wonder, you know, if a guy like that who had that kind of, you know, he could draw people to him. If he chose a different path, would he have been successful doing something else? Steve? Uh, thanks, Steve. Got frozen. Uh, oh. you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, you know what, and you're absolutely right, if he would have been a good guy, if he would have been, he would have been a, a great president of Columbia because he was sharp. He had that charismatic. He was street smart. Uh, he knew how to give orders. He knew, you know, so that would have probably made him one of the best presidents Columbia, you know, ever had. But I mean, obviously he didn't take that route. He chose the route of being a, uh, like they said, uh, uh, a trafficker and, uh, Pablo Escobar, you know, didn't, didn't kill one person. He killed as many as possible, uh, during, you know, that fight he had with Columbia. Well, while we're waiting for Steve to reconnect here, um, I wanted to talk to you after he escaped. Uh, you know, that's when the search block right. resumed and, and you guys were involved in that. Um, and that's when, you know, they started taking down his organization one one piece at a time. Right. And that, that was where one of the discrepancies in, in uh, the narco show came about where it said you were working with Los Pepes, and we, right. we know that that wasn't really true. Well, and I'm glad you brought that out. And I'm going to explain. I think, Steve, you're back, right? You can hear us? Yeah, I apologize, guys. I'm an internet connection. Yeah. Anyway, Los Pepes, and that's the only personal one. And, and you know what? I suffered because of that, man. I thought I was going to get indicted. I mean, I was accused. There was a, uh, an article written in the Miami Herald. Uh, which claims that says that Javier Pena was involved with Los Pepes. And man, that was like, oh. And you know how that accusation comes in, you know, when it's in the U.S. press. Um, and obviously it wasn't true. Real quick, so I know we're running out of time, see, but what happened is when Pablo Escobar, when he escaped, the, the first colonel running the base was pretty much afraid of going after Pablo Escobar. So we rallied, and he did not like the SF guys. Oh, man, he did not like I mean, we had a lot of problems with this guy. Because Colonel Martinez, the original commander that was there chasing Pablo Escobar on the first search, after Escobar surrendered, Martinez was sent out of the country, you know, to give him a break because, man, you know, he needed a break. It was personal. Escobar was trying to kill Martinez's family. So they were sent to Spain. So when Escobar escaped, they assigned this weak WAK colonel to run the base. Man, we had more problems with him. We should have had Escobar in the first two or three days because we had him located. The operators would tell us he's exactly here at this location. Colonel, we need manpower. He did not want to go out after Pablo Escobar. So once Martinez gets back, He's assigned and man, it made a difference. So all of a sudden, we started seeing this guy named Don Berna uh, at the base. And man, it was something, you know, and Steve and I would talk to him because he was working with the cops, you know, with everybody. And he had his own, he had about 20 bodyguards with him. And uh, Colonel Martinez, I'll never forget, I said, Colonel, who's this guy? He I said, he's kind of shaky i don't and colonel martinez says javier we don't trust him either but he has been assigned 
by the Colombia Attorney General to help us in the search for Escobar, right? So that was like, hey, okay, he's not our informant, he's your informant. So all of a sudden, Don Berna is protecting Steve and I because we would meet informants through the 800 number and the cops were busy. And a lot of times they're doing five, six operations a day. It was Don Berna who was protecting us, right? Who would send map power to make sure that we were not gonna get killed. It was not a setup. So long story short, after Escobar gets killed, blah, 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 all that stuff, we find out that Don Berna was actually the leader of Los Pepes. Uh, but that was like, what, Steve, two, three years, I think, afterwards. Quite and, a while, quite a time after. Right, yeah. So we didn't you know. So uh, then the accusations that, are, you know, we know Don Berna. He protected us. We never did anything with him. And that's when the accusation came in about me uh, working with Don Berna. In the narco series, uh, basically how that happened, you know what? And I knew about it. You know, they, they, Eric Newman called me. He says, Javier, uh, hey, your second season, we're going to make your character be out, you know, more a little bit on the dirty side, you know, the womanizing, <laughs> working with Don yeah. Berna. You know, that we know it's not true, Javier, but you know what? I was making money off of Netflix, so I didn't give a shit. So I said, all right. <laughs> and I had to sign a piece of paper saying that I would not sue Netflix for my character assassination. So, I, you know, and the other point I tell people, you know what? If all that was true, I'd be getting out of prison right about now. So <laughs> that wasn't yeah. true. And that was made up. the but, actor they had. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The actor, uh, I was about to say the actor. The actor they had playing Don Berner looked exactly like, at least the, the pictures I saw in books and wow. stuff, looked when exactly saw, like him. You're right. When I saw the actor on stage, I thought it was a real Don Berner. I, I, I was like, <laughs> I, I thought, because we know, we I know Don Berner, and I saw they did a great job, you know, depicting Don Berner, but... Uh, we know Don Berna. Matter of fact, I think I, I think I mentioned the book, right? He gave me a watch after Pablo Escobar gets killed, hundred thousand dollars. I said, "Hey, Don Berna, I'm sorry, I can't accept the gift." And one of the colonels, major, said, "Like, yeah, just take it." So I called Joe Todd. Obviously, you know, we sent the watch into headquarters. And by the way, just before retiring, I went up to headquarters. And I'm not going to mention a name. There was a big boss at DEA wearing that Don Berna's watch. So. <laughs> Uh, Steve, Steve, you were in Medellin because uh, if I remember right in the book, uh, Javier was chasing down a, uh, a a lead somewhere else yeah. the, on the day that Pablo got, got caught. But you were actually there. Can you talk us through that um, that that last day of his? Sure. That's you know, and just start out with my only regret that whole day was that Javier wasn't there. Because you know what, I was in Columbia three years. Javier was down there six and a half years. So uh, you know, and I came in. He'd already been there three years, and I came into a great situation because he had already earned the trust and respect of the Columbian National Police, and simply because he and I were partners. You know that they accepted me down there. But it turns out that I used to carry a, a camera and a video camera. I always had a steel camera with me, a little thirty-five millimeter. Uh, wherever we went on ops and you just never knew what you're going to see. And, and you know how beautiful Columbia is. There's always some nice scenery. So on that day, I was actually over in the, you know, there's a quad out there where the 
the barracks we were staying at and the offices were. And I was actually standing in the room with all the U.S. operators just chit-chatting because, you know, we'd been, we'd been together for 18 months. And you get to be pretty good friends with a lot of those guys. And, um, and I'm just standing there shooting the breeze. And, and all of a sudden, I see the executive staff for Colonel Martinez rushing over to his office. And, you know, in law enforcement, we call that a clue, you know, because <laughs> something's going on, right? Um, so I told the operators, I said, I'll, I'll go check out and see what's going on and get back to you. And, and I go over there, and the nice thing was we had such a good relationship with Colonel Martinez that he saw me come up to this door of his office, and he motions for me to come on in. And one of the uh, lieutenant colonels whispers over and says, hey, they think they found Pablo Escobar. And so we're listening on the walkie-talkie as, as Colonel Martinez is issuing orders. And, you know, as we all know, the guy that found Pablo Escobar that day using radio directional finding equipment was Colonel Martinez's son, Lieutenant Martinez. So that's, you know, it's pretty cool that you got this, this good guy father-son team going up against this bad guy father-son team because Pablo, who was he talking to? His son, Juan Pablo, who was back in Bogota. So, um, you know, Colonel Martinez is issuing orders, listen, secure the site. We're loading up the search block. You know, we're on our way, but don't lose him. Don't take any chances of losing Pablo because Lieutenant Martinez confirmed he saw Pablo Escobar looking out the window. He saw with his own eyes, 100% confirmation. Well, you know, loading 600 troops up takes a little while. It's not something you do in two minutes, right? And you, so you got to muster the troops. You got to issue weapons. You got to make sure everybody's accounted for. You got to give assignments. You got to get the vehicles out. Oh, thank you. Uh, he, he, he froze up again. Well, there he is. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So. No, uh, well, anyway, he's. Uh, I'll, I'll finish the story unless he comes back up on. So, okay. yeah, yeah. And, and basically, yeah, like you said, Colonel Martinez is giving orders. Steve is there. Go ahead, Steve. Okay. Um, I apologize for this. The schools are using the internet around here. It's killing the signals. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what happened was the unit that was out there, and this is the unit that Javier and I lived with and worked with, they went ahead and took the initiative. Still frozen. Yeah, we lost him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know we're we're coming to the end, right? So let me. You want me to finish? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sure. The, the, yeah, the the cops we work with, they went up. They uh, they uh, you know went into the. They saw Pablo Escobar talking. So a guy bodyguard comes out. Remember, we should say Escobar had five hundred bodyguards towards mm -hmm. the end. One guy. So he the cops engaged him. They kill him. So he's in the front. They go up the the stairs, and, and Pablo's on the rooftop now. And uh, he's trying to leave, but he's shooting back at our guys who are chasing him. There's a firefight. Uh, Pablo gets hit uh, a couple of times. Then all of a sudden, like I said, it's uh, he's, he, you know what? He died shooting at the police. The police were the ones who uh, later on, you know, they, they shot him, hit him a couple of times. Pablo Escobar, you know, dies on that rooftop. Then, uh, like I said, that's where Steve shows up, you know, and like I said, Steve's the only one who, who had a camera. And uh, and Steve showed up with Colonel Martinez. So he takes the famous photos, you know, of the guys. Obviously, Steve takes one of himself, right? The guy with a red shirt. And, uh, but you know what? It, it, it was, and we always tell people, the 
the it was the Colombian cops who killed Pablo Escobar. Nobody else uh, was involved in that. There's a lot of other theories out there. Uh, special forces guys, of course, they could have done it, but they were not there. And you know what? And I, I like the Colombians. They told me, Javier, don't take this away from us. This is we get criticized for everything. Right. You know, said so guys. You, you know, that's what we always say. The Colombian National League, the search block. They were the heroes that day, led by Colonel Hugo Martinez and his son, Lieutenant Martinez. They are considered the heroes and nobody else. So, again, they're the ones who took down Pablo Escobar. They took their country back from a guy who killed about 50,000 people. Steve's back on. I finished your story, Steve. I've heard that so much. This is well, that's okay. That's, uh, well, it's that, you know, the school's all doing virtual stuff. The internet is a kind of sketchy thing these days. Uh, I wanted to ask you guys about the, the show Narcos. I know they, they took a few liberties. Obviously we had mentioned the Los Pepes thing. Um, they didn't kill your cat. I understand your cat died of old age, correct? That's correct. He did go in Columbia, but he had a heart attack. Yeah. So I imagine that ticked off your wife when she saw that on the, on uh, television. But I wanted to ask you guys both, what did you think of the actor who played Pablo? Because I thought he was brilliant. And now I didn't know Pablo Escobar. Like you guys knew him a lot better, but it seemed like he captured the essence of the guy that we expected to see there. And he actually was able to project a little bit of, I'm not going to say sympathy, but yeah, a little bit of sympathy for the guy. Uh, I thought he was brilliant. And uh, I heard that just prior to that, that this guy didn't speak any Spanish. Yeah. Wagner Mora, Brazilian actor, you hit it right on the on the head, your description. Did a great job, phenomenal job. And uh, Wagner Mora did not speak Spanish. In fact, I was there when he first showed up in Medellin. Uh, I was there, we were scouting areas. I was showing uh, the Netflix people, the locations. And Wagner Mora flew in, so I met him. I did not speak Spanish. Can you believe that? Speak Spanish. So he got there about a couple of months before they started filming. He immersed himself in a in a in a language school. And when he came out, man, he was speaking that perfect Medellin accent. In Colombia, if you're from Medellin, you have a very distinct accent, which Pablo Escobar had a very distinct. Uh, it's a paisa accent, and he cornered that accent to a T. He walked like him, he talked like him, he acted like Pablo Escobar. I mean, just did a phenomenal job. Wagner Mora, Brazilian actor uh, in depicting uh, Pablo Escobar. Then, Steve, you do a good job with the sympathy, right? I mean. Yeah, so, you know, in the second season there, it shows there, there was a downtime before his capture uh, where we weren't getting any tips or leads. And it was, you know, it was, it was very frustrating. Well, in the show Narcos, they show that Pablo had gone out with his father out on the farm. Well, that's Hollywood, because if we'd known that, we'd have gone out to the farm and got Pablo, right? But yeah. you're watching Wagner Moore during this time and playing Pablo, and my wife and I are sitting there, and the next thing you know, I catch myself feeling sorry for Pablo Escobar, and I thought, <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I'm on the good side. He's on the bad side. But uh, that's, that's the quality of actor that Wagner Moore was. And you know what? In real life, he is one of the most nicest most humble people you'll ever meet just unassuming you know he doesn't come around with any cocky attitude or anything and his wife is just as sweet as he is i mean he's just one of the nicest people you ever meet 
Yeah, and you know, uh, I thought again, I thought he was really brilliant uh, in, in that because he was able to project that. And uh, I think um, I read somewhere where you guys were talking about what a weird character Escobar actually was because you know he's on the phone with his wife telling her how much he loves her, he misses her, and you're getting this human sense of him. And at the same time, in the background, he's He's telling his Sicarios to shut the guy up in the back who they're torturing in the other room. I mean, how is that? I mean, that's in, that's some crazy stuff there, isn't it? You know what that is? And, and you know what? And I listened to that conversation. I'm, you know, uh, I'm listening to it. And it's it's just like you said, he, he's telling his wife he misses her. He loves her. He wish was, you know, and this is what we're chasing, right? And then, I'll, you know, he's just sweet talking. And all of a sudden in the background, I, you hear a shriek. It's a, one of those yells. And all he does is try to cover the phone, which he did. Turns around, says, cover his mouth. <laughs> and then continues talking to his wife. I love you. We'll be together soon. And so I'm, I'm, I've always thought of that. That poor guy, they're torturing him, you know. Uh, he was probably killed right after that conversation. But how do you, how does a person, a human being, just go from one, from zero to a hundred and, you know, in less than a second? You know what? But that was Pablo Escobar at his best and at his worst. Yeah. And Steve, um, the the character uh, Colonel Carrillo in the in the series is that based on Colonel Martinez? Is that was what uh, it was? Is that kind of like his personality, or well, or it was, was he completely different? It was. He was very different. He was. So there was no Colonel Carrillo. That was. Uh, that's Hollywood made right. up. And like it shows Carrillo killing that kid. That didn't happen. Uh, they show that they captured Gustavo Gaviria, Pablo's cousin, and tortured him and then shot him. That's not true either. That's, I mean, he was killed in a gun battle, but there was no kidnapping, torture, and then a murder committed. Uh, but in real life, Colonel Martinez was very tall. And it, as you know, you've been down there. Colombians, uh, as, a, as a people, are not, the men aren't really tall for the most part. I mean, I'm 6'2", and I was taller than most Colombians down there. But Colonel Martinez was about 6'2", uh, carried himself very professionally. He had a, uh, an air about him that uh, his mannerisms and his temperament that you wanted to work for the guy, you know, is, is one of the people that you really look forward to working for. You had that much respect for him. Uh, he was fair. He would entertain Javier and I, uh, you know, my, even with my bad language skills, uh, he was still very patient with me. Um, and, you know, the day that Pablo was killed, as soon as, you know, they said Paul was killed, I ran back and told the, the U.S. operators what had happened, and I jumped on the phone to call our boss in Bogota. Well, they, I couldn't get hold of him. It took me probably five minutes before Mr. Tall, our country out of shade, came up on the phone. And the first thing he said on the phone was, they got Pablo. I'm like, well, no kidding. I'm calling. So um, in the meantime, as all this is going on, the search block leaves. And, and Toff tells me, tells me, he says, your job is to get out there and confirm that's Pablo Escobar. So I run back in the barracks and I'm grabbing my gear. I come running out and every vehicle in the compound is gone. The only people there are the guards on the gates and me and the secretarial staff. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, <laughs> what am I going to do? Well, lo and behold, here comes the colonel. Colonel Martinez comes driving back in with his bodyguards and his driver in a Jeep. 
And he looks over and he, and he hollers at me. And they had a hard time saying my name, Steve. It came out of stick or stick. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? And I said, Colonel, I need to ride out to the, to the site. You know, and he's like, come on, go with me. So I rode out to the site with Colonel Martinez. And that's the kind of guy he was. I mean, it just, you know, loved him as a brother in law enforcement. I uh, had the utmost respect for him. Uh, you can imagine what he was going through because his son was out there on the front lines and, and uh, you know, his wife. I mean, Pablo sent death threats to him and his family. The people were, they, the, they lived in an apartment complex in Bogota. Everybody else in the apartment complex sent a letter to Colonel Martinez and his family asking them to move because they were afraid that Pablo would bomb their building. That's the kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. that people were having to live under the pressure and the anxiety that goes on with that. It was, it was a horrible situation. But the utmost, and I heard as I came back in, uh, I heard Javier telling you that uh, the Colombians are the true heroes. You know, people call Javier and I heroes, which is a lot better than most names we've been called through our law enforcement careers. <laughs> but we weren't heroes. We were just professional law enforcement guys doing our job. And like JP said, I'll back it up 100% every time. The Columbia National Police are the true heroes because they took their country back. Well, I hate to disagree with you, but you two guys are heroes too. So. <laughs> thank you. Hey. Hey, we, we really want to thank you guys today. This was a blast for me. Like I said, I, you know, I lived in Columbia during that time frame. I didn't have anything to do with what you guys did, but uh, being down there, it's a, it is a gorgeous country. I love the people and it was a, a very interesting time there. And you guys were on the front line of all that. And I, I encourage all our listeners out there buy the book. Uh, you won't be disappointed. The book is fantastic. It's a great read. It tells both of your stories. It tells both of your perspectives when all this was going on. I really like that part because it bounces back and forth between both of you guys. And uh, it, it was a fantastic book. As, as much as they took a few liberties with the show, I really liked the show Narcos. In yeah. fact, this morning to get ready for this, I was watching some of the episodes from season two today. So... Uh, <laughs> And that's when I saw Javier with with one of uh, Pablo's girls there, and I was like, "Hey, <laughs> I just got one question for you, Steve, before we finish up here." I mean, just you were, down, you were down there during that time. Did I, mean, I wonder if you had any the same girlfriends that Javier did? <laughs> well, <laughs> that was right before. I, actually, it was right after Columbia. I came home. And I met my wife. So uh, when I was down there, it was, uh, it was. Let's just say it, that side of the Colombian lifestyle was everything was made up to be. That's <laughs> it. Beautiful country. And you know what? We encourage our listeners visit Colombia. It's a safe place, beautiful place. They got some, uh, you know, like I said, great history. And what's the only caveat? And I've already told you all, right? If you go to Medellin, you do not bat mouth Pablo Escobar. Number one tourist attraction, Pablo Escobar's grave site. So, right. Wow, that's yep. amazing. Yeah, that is. Well, again, we, we really want to thank you guys. This was fantastic. I, I really appreciate your time. And we all salute your service. You guys were on the front line of that time. And, and we all know that, you know, once he went down, others took his place. But, you know, you guys were there when the country needed you. And I think the Colombians appreciate you even more. So thanks again. Um, and this was a lot of fun and I would love to get you guys back on in the future. So uh, 
Hey, I tell you what, Steve, thank you for making it so much fun for us, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank you, Steve, for your service. You know, you've done a lot. We want to thank you, man. You've been out there. you got a great story. So thank you, buddy. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I was a SF NCO, and then to the Army's eternal regret, they made me an officer. So, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, thanks again, guys. This was superb. And we want to thank everyone for listening to Soft Rep Radio. If you want to get Soft Rep on your phone, download our free mobile app. Get easy access to our articles, podcasts like this one, gear reviews, and all perfectly formatted to your device. Subscribe to SoftRep to get access to our library of ebooks and our exclusive team room forms and content available on Apple and Android podcasts. I can never say that. So I have to read it off my piece of paper. <laughs> Guys, thanks once again. And uh, this okay. was a lot of fun. And uh, good luck. God bless you guys. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll look forward to the next one. We do. All right. All right. We'll see y'all later. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.